Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are lucky to be joined by Gillian Schwedler, who is a professor of political science at City University of New York's Hunter College and the Graduate Center, and she's the author of the recently published Protesting Jordan, Geographies of Power and Dissent, which we'll be discussing today. Gillian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to be here, Ezra. I'm really excited to have the chance to chat with you about the book today because I personally became interested in Jordan while studying history and then moving into political science. And your book really speaks so well to that intersection of history and politics. Oh, thank you so much. And using that that intersection of history and politics, the book really involves a, a retelling of Jordanian history from those resisting the development of the state rather than the standard sort of top-down state-making narrative. And I'd be really interested to hear, you know, why you chose this approach. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I started this project because I noticed how many protests there were in Jordan in the contemporary period, way more than most people realize, like hundreds a year and sometimes thousands. And yet Jordan never had the sort of massacres that you find in other non-democratic countries. So immediately you had this interesting kind of hook, like how do you explain a country with so many protests? Right. So as I started tracing back the patterns of protest and protest repertoires and what people did in what kinds of places. When I got to the beginning of the state-making period, that's post-World uh, War I, Great Arab Revolt period, that's where most, as you mentioned, this is where most of the, the stories of the beginning of the state are told, right? right? It's sort of a state-making period. It's a colonial project with British support. There's lots of resistance, but they're all, it's all basically crushed and the state-making project moves forward. But when I got to that period, I noticed there were all these revolts and acts of resistance of various sorts spanning back uh, decades, 100 years even. And it became important to see those patterns and which of those continued through the state-making period and which didn't. And so when you see, for example, in the Adwan Rebellion marching on uh, the capital because they think they don't have enough jobs in government and they're upset about the taxation scheme, this is a repertoire that they had been doing with the Ottomans hmm. for decades, not just the Adwan, but in Jordan. And so I really felt that you needed, if you were going to tell this from the, the position of people resisting, you needed to go back to the earlier instances of resisting as well. And as many historians talk about, the early ages of the new state, the early period, wasn't as stark a transition as it's often made out to be. It, in some ways, the Ottoman were simply replaced by another authority that went forward with taxation. But as, of course, the British and uh, the Hashemites set out with a different sort of state-making project in scope, and that's where things began to change. But I really wanted to capture those earlier patterns to help explain how and where and through what forms they were resisting the new state-making project as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and then linking the, the earlier history with the subsequent Hashemite you know, state-making history, what leverage does that sort of more long durée period give us for understanding the current landscape of contentious politics in Jordan? Well, I think for the long view, again, you have these sort of patterns of resistance and repertoires of resistance. And so you can see how those continue and carry through. You can also see where new forms emerge. And often they emerge around the kinds of institutions that emerge or the kinds of new development and state making. Right. So one example I develop is Amman, which is a small dusty town. It's a trade town. It's not the center of any local power, doesn't have any repertoire of protest. In fact, I couldn't find a single instance 
recorded of a protest before the Emir Abdullah settled his capital there. And so you're seeing suddenly Amman becomes the center for protest because it is the seat of the Hashemite power, because it becomes an economic powerhouse over the next decades. And so you're really seeing this shift in the ways in which people are protesting. And they're protesting against the kinds of institutions that are put in place. They're protesting against taxation, who's getting benefits, who's not getting benefits. But the point is, a lot of those expectations and grievances continue through the long 20th century into the 21st century. And so when you're seeing in my latter chapters, the kinds of acts of resistance and protest and rhetoric, frankly, about the king, uh, criticism of the king, a large part of it threads back to this early period and these expectations of we'll support you in exchange for certain kinds of privilege, certain kinds of jobs, etc. And you can't understand fully the last 30 years of resistance and rebellion without understanding and connecting it to that earlier period. Right. And I guess that really speaks to the the recent discussion of the renewed social contract and, and situating them within that sort of pre-independence history. Yeah, precisely, precisely. Otherwise, the context for that gets lost if you're not connecting it to that earlier period. And so the scope of it, that long historic scope, really was a product of me getting to an early period and saying, oh, I need to go back further and I need to go back further. And I felt the 1860s, 1870s was a good starting point. Um, But again, I think it threads through the forms of resistance, the ways people protest, their expectations towards the regime all thread through this long period um, and make so so much more sense today if you have that background to, to set up and understand um, that historic past of protest and resistance. Right. And, and through that long period of focus, you continue to discuss the relationship between protests and space. And so maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you chose space as sort of a key axis for the book and what that means for your research approach. Well, in a way, I discovered the role of space because of one of my interlocutors, where typically when you interview, as you know, at the end, you're always asked, what am I missing? What should I be asking? What am I getting wrong? Sure. And one of my activist interlocutors said to me, and this is in the 2000s, maybe 2004 or five, said to me, well, you know, the places where we're protesting are disappearing. And I thought, how does space disappear? (laughs) And so I really delved into that. And one of the first example that he gave me immediately was reconstruction of the fourth circle. So the fourth circle is one of these traffic circles on Zahran Street, which runs straight into the downtown area and notorious for decades for being very snarled traffic. It's also the site, the fourth circle of the prime ministry office. And as you know, it's illegal to criticize the king under multiple laws. So the proxy for that is people criticize the prime minister, and that seemed to be okay. So as a result, the fourth circle is a site for protest. Now, what he was talking about was the government had begun reconstructing these traffic circles with underpasses uh, in order to alleviate traffic. And so while the space hadn't really disappeared yet, as we'll see in a moment, but while it hadn't quite disappeared yet, in some ways it was diminished because of the, the structure of the traffic circle created different kinds of spatial um, possibilities, but also it wasn't as disruptive. So whereas they could take two dozen people holding hands weaving through traffic and bring that intersection to a standstill, now the majority of the traffic is zipping by underneath these underpasses in in two directions, and you're really not even visible to them. So you're not as disruptive. You're not visible. You're really only visible to the people at the top of the traffic circle. 
So, and that wasn't intended to affect protests, but it had that effect. So as I started pushing in this direction and talking to protesters, I discovered that in fact, places were being removed from being accessible for protest sites, including on the fourth circle, the reconstructed circle has a, had a plaza on the circle above, which had benches and it was open and people could gather there. And after some protests, the government fenced it off and landscaped it. Right. Right. And so that plaza space for gathering was simply no longer there. The same thing with the interior circle, the Gamal Abdel Nasser circle, where there was a major uprising or major encampment on March 24th in 2011. Uh, that is now fenced off and landscaped, as are a number of other spaces that I've documented. And so it really came from that first comment that I started thinking about uh, the spatial dimension more systematically and more theoretically. So in addition to the spaces disappearing, just one of the other uh, spatial examples that I talk about, I develop extensively, is that certain spaces have different kinds of repertoires or routines, as I call them, for how people protest there. And so one surprising example is the protests in the downtown area. Now, in the early Hashemite period, this was the center of the city. And if you protested down there, you could bring to stop commerce. The government couldn't ignore you, et cetera. Right. As the capital has expanded out in all directions and government buildings have been relocated to multiple places, the major uh, higher end, more important economic and commercial sectors are no, no longer located down there. People still protest down there, but it's not disruptive because unless you're in the immediate area, you're not really disrupting a whole lot. And this is something that really confounds a lot of the sort of events data coding for protests that a lot of political science do, which I'm not opposed to doing it. But I noticed that often you see where there's spikes in numbers of protests and you think these are the most contentious moments. And what my work with the attention to space shows that because that location is not disruptive, that thousands of people down there are frankly quite preferable to the government as long as they adhere to the established routine than protests in other places like the fourth circle and other places that can still be deemed more contentious or more disruptive. Hmm. And that was, I thought, a surprising insight that came from my attention to space. I do other things with space, as you know, as well. But those are some of the insights that um, looking at space brought forward, I thought, richer understandings of both protests and resistance, but also modes of, of repression as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. While reading, I was thinking about how just after the Arab Spring, I used to go to a cafe up the street from the Husseini Mosque, you know, on Fridays just to watch the small protests because it was just, you know, a really nice kind of routine performance. Yeah. And it's fascinating because Jordanians know that on day, you know, for, for the most part, when there's protests down there, the coffee shops aren't closed. The stores are not boarded up. You know, the, the stores all remain open and probably get an increase of traffic. Other pedestrians aren't the least bit concerned. These protests in certain areas are simply not as contentious. And the fact that you would sit there and have coffee is an illustration of that as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and one of the things that I was I, I found really engaging in the book is that you zoom in and out of different levels of space and, and levels of contention, moving from the micro level, like the Husseini Mosque, but also examining much larger spaces. And one of the parts that was particularly interesting for me was around how protests shaped a man. So it'd be great if you could kind of tell us a bit about this dynamic. Yeah, so there's a number of ways in which it's been shaped by protest and also the urban space shapes protests themselves. And it's really that sort of back and forth that I'm trying to capture with a number of different examples. So uh, in addition to the fencing off of spaces, obviously protests shape 
um, the, the closing off of spaces directly. I have an example that reflects the insights that are often drawn with Paris and the Osmanian reconstruction of Paris in the 1860s and 1870s, whereby those wide boulevards, which did multiple things, they facilitated sewage lines and flows of air as well. But they also, uh, as David Harvey shows in his work, uh, his masterful book on Paris, those spokes ended at army barracks. And so they worked as avenues for the police, for the army to get into the city to put down resistance quite easily. Right. So Jordan doesn't have that. But Jordan's topography, as you know, it's based around these seven primary hills. And it's very windy and some of the places are steep. And during the late 60s and 70s, when the government, the army was fighting the uh, Palestinian Fedayeen militias, they discovered, among other things, that they couldn't easily get into the places where they were had these strongholds, particularly the Husseini and the Wahdat refugee camps, among other crowded neighborhoods. So sometime after the Black September period, a large uh, street was cut down the middle of the Wahdat camp, which was a central place during the Black September events and previous in the years prior to that, um, on Sumaya Street. So now that's a wide street which facilitated the movement cutting right through the camp. Many people actually know this street because it's the opening scene to the film, The Hurt Locker, mm, was right. filmed on Sumaya Street. And so if you've seen that, you've seen this wide open street that didn't used to be a wide open street. And so that's one way in which, you know, rebellion and resistance has shaped the built environment. Another example that I show in the book is this Abdali Boulevard mega project in, in the west side of Amman which was titled The New Downtown for Amen. The New Downtown and like <laughs> gleaming skyscrapers and shiny modernist, et cetera. Um, an entire neighborhood is moved and a, a, a working class transit hub is moved to relocate it. So this is one of the, the insights that I think connects with a lot of places globally. And the, the work really tries to be comparative beyond just the Middle East or the, the global South. And so it's very common you're seeing the privatization of public spaces as part of these mega projects. I live in New York City. We have a lot of these. Right. The implications for that, though, although public has access to them, they're maintained by the private uh, organization. But as you have no right to protest on those kinds of privatized public spaces, and there are often lawsuits about that as well. And so this now is a privatized space. This Abdali Boulevard Center is a privatized space. So protest isn't possible there, and people don't actually try to protest there. More interesting, however, is on the um, eastern end of that project, underground is the Abdali Mall, right. this huge mall. And in the 3D rendered model of, of that whole project, on that eastern end, there's a huge open plaza. And that plaza is never built. And one of the directors of that project told the architect and ur urban planner, Eliana Abu Hamdi um, from Syracuse University, told her that they didn't build the plaza because they were worried that people would protest there. Oh, interesting. So they literally left off an entire public space. So think about this. They're closing down all these other plazas so people can't access it, removing benches so be people won't hang out there. And now an entire plaza is left off of a project, a public space that is erased or never built in the first place, explicitly out of concern for protest. And so I develop a number of those kinds of examples to show that. And I think, and I, I hope this happened to you, but I think once you're aware of them, you can't move around the city without starting to notice those on a pretty regular basis. 
Yeah, actually, one example that I was thinking of while reading your book was the, was the fourth circle and how it has become kind of a, a central site for campaign posters during elections. And your book got me thinking about the extent to which this sort of shift from from really contentious politics to a sort of sanitized good government, good governance might be an intentional process in a way. Yeah, well, I, we certainly don't know if it's intentional, but it does seem quite striking. And I do a look at a lot of ways in which sites, many sites for protest, after protest, the government wants to re-signify them and structure, you know, whether it's a, a very large flag or, you know, portraits of the royal family, etc., you know, military statues and such. Um, and so re-signifying that to say, okay, this is a political space, but it's an electoral political space. There's acceptable ways in which you can participate and you can use it in that form. This is not specific to Jordan, but Governments don't like protests because they're unpredictable. And so there's often been efforts to channel political dissent into elections, into campaigns, into political parties, the sites of institutional politics that the government can more readily control and and contain. And so the fact that all those campaign posters go up in and around that site isn't surprising to me. But again, we don't know the intentionality, even the fencing we don't know is the fencing because it was directed uh, systematically, or did some uh, administrator put up a fence and then others decide, oh, this is apparently what we're supposed to do. Let's all put up fences and shut these down. We don't really know, but the political effects are quite clear and that's what we can, you know, attend to those. And the fencing is, is a really interesting example of the different spatial techniques that the Jordanian regime, you know, uses to prevent protest and, and divest spaces of their opposition meaning. What are some of the other tactics that the regime uses in Amman or, or, or beyond? Um, another example that's related to the fencing, so we talked about the fourth circle, is I was attending a protest in April 2019, which was the 30th anniversary of the 1989 protests. And so I'm there waiting for this protest to happen. It's supposed to be at six. And there's all kinds of armored vehicles on the circle. And there's the gendarmerie. And there's nobody else. And so I'm thinking it got canceled or something. And I call up my friend. I'm like, what's happening? And he's like, where are you? He's like, we're at the protest. I'm like, where's the protest? He goes, at the fourth circle. And I'm like, no, I'm at the fourth circle. And you're not here. Well, the government had decided you can't protest. Even with all these fences, they didn't want any protests on the actual circle. And so they allowed them to protest down the hill on a parking lot. Now, a parking lot does not obstruct traffic. Right? It's off to the side. So you can have that. And so those became the, quote, fourth circle protests. Um, and that went on for quite a while until they still didn't want those to happen. And in several instances, used major force to prevent protesters from ever reaching the site, prevent observers from ever reaching the site. And then during the pandemic, um, my book has a, a photograph taken by the anthropologist Kyle Craig, uh, who's doing fantastic work in Jordan. And uh, they put up a 10-foot concrete barrier around the parking lot. So you can still get in the parking lot. The parking lot's accessible, but there's now a 10-foot concrete barrier around it, which serves no purpose except to render anything in the parking lot not visible to anybody walking by. Right. And so this is another, you know, instance of tr- trying to sort of deflate protests through these kinds of uh, means of controlling space. Right. And and that reminds me of your comment earlier about how common protests are in Jordan. And you have a passage in the book about, you know, protests being almost as commonplace in a man as they are in D.C. 
So maybe you could talk a little bit about the role that these routine protests play in terms of challenging and reproducing power in Jordan. So a lot of the literature on protests, and particularly big protests like uprisings, really focus in on did the protest accomplish what it set out to do, the success-failure model. And there's a huge literature on that. And so the question you're asking is part of what I try to do when I look beyond the success-failure model. And I'm not saying I'm unconcerned with whether protests accomplish what they aim to do. Of course, that's essential. But say we have protests that aren't even going to possibly accomplish what they want, like 50 people asking for the abolition of the peace treaty with Israel. It's not going to happen. And they know it's not going to happen. So studying those protests, which seem very routine and almost monotonous and not tense at all, led me to ask the kinds of questions of, well, what what purpose are these protests doing anyways? What are the political effects of these protests? And I come up with a number of answers. Um, And some of these, I think, go to the reproduction of state power. You know, so you're challenging state power. But the protests, uh, it's one set of protests that I discussed in Chapter 5 at the Kaluti Mosque. And I should mention, like the Husseini Mosque, it's nothing to do with Islam. It's just a gathering place and a landmark. Right. So people gather at the Kaluti Mosque. And during the 2000 uh, Second Intifada, it became a, a massive place for rallying because it's proximity to the Israeli embassy and people would go there to march on the Israeli embassy and the government with crazy security to stop anyone from reaching the embassy. So those protests continue for months and months and for years, but they diminish in size. And so what happens is you have this group performing a reenactment of the march on the Israeli embassy without actually trying to march on the Israeli embassy. Uh, so the, and the police allow that to happen as long as they stick to the established routine and everybody stays on script, so to speak. So this question then is, what are you doing? What is being accomplished by this, you know, maintaining this regime? And so I argue that by maintaining the regime and doing what, you know, adhering to the red line or the pattern or the repertoire that the, the government finds acceptable, you're actually reproducing state power as well as even though you're rhetorically challenging it, you're falling in line and doing what the state wants. And by not crossing that line, it's works as to help reproduce the power by behaving accordingly. But it does other kinds of political work too. So the activists talk about, for example, wanting to keep protest spaces open. So some will say, if we stop protesting for a couple of years, they might not let us restart. And so we're going to stay here and keep protesting to keep this space open. We're going to stay here and protest to keep this issue in the public debate, to let people know that we haven't just accepted it, that this critique still continues and we're going to make sure that circulates, even if it's only small. And also, if there's something else or when Israel mounts another military campaign that ends up in destruction of Palestinian lives and property, etc., everyone will know where to go. And so so they see that as an important kind of political work, sort of signifying that place is this is the go-to place for protests against Israel. And in fact, people do know that. They know this is the place to go. They have protest in other places about the same issues as well, but this would be the hot spot for those issues. So those are some of the things that the political work that gets done by protest. The last one I'll add is um, the Muslim Brotherhood, who loves having protests in the downtown area, has, I don't know if you've seen any of these, they have their own, I call them parade guards, but they have their own guys with yellow vests with the Muslim Brotherhood symbol on it, making sure everything goes smoothly. No one's hurt, nothing, everyone stays in line and it, it progresses as planned. So not very contentious. Right. But 
the photographs of a thousand people down there are quite spectacular. And so they'll photo, they'll have those protests, they'll have their photographers photograph it. And you can find these in the Islamist newspaper, as Sibyl, and circulating in a number of their websites that look like they're this real contentious actor, that they're turning out people, that they're challenging the regime, that they're not afraid. And in a way that does a kind of work for the Muslim Brotherhood Islamic Action Front by signaling to its constituency it's still contentious, by showing that they can turn people out. But in practice, there's nothing contentious about those protests at all. And so I think this is the, those Kaluti protests I mentioned um, near the Israeli embassy. It's very routine that the Islamists will show up with their green Islamic action front flags, take a lot of photos and pack up and go home while the remainder will stand there and begin to you know, do the, the quote unquote march towards the Israeli embassy and confront the police um, and the Islamists will be gone. So they're, they're getting something out of those protests but not at all succeeding in you know, abolishing the treaty. So I, I try to do this with all the protests to ask the broader question, what are the political effects? What political work is done here besides whether the protests succeed or fail? Right. And, and then on the other side of the spectrum, from the routine non-disruptive protests, what are the protest repertoires and spaces that are most contentious, that the government doesn't want to see, that are, that are red flags for the regime? So I think some of the most contentious repertoires, interestingly enough, mirror or replicate some of the things that were done in the Ottoman period. Hmm. And these are outside of Amman, outside of the capital, not organized by activist groups or political parties or trade unions, but in fact, organized by disgruntled people who are angry at the government. And this repertoire includes blocking roads with, you know, barricade roadblocks, let's bring the trade to a halt. Um, burning government buildings, burning government vehicles, destruction of government property. Uh, and what's become increasingly contentious, as I show in the book, is uh, mounting tents and holding sustained sit-ins. A sustained sit-in by even two dozen people in an out-of-the-way town that nobody's going to see unless you're there is more contentious than thousands of people downtown Amman, right? And so this is a surprising instance. And they'll go to great lengths to tear down these tents I have an interesting example where one of the activist campaigns against Jordan's gas deal treaty with Israel uh, had a huge banner it wanted to unfurl in front of the Ministry of Energy. And the police wouldn't let him unfurl this banner for the longest time because they were convinced it was a tent. Mm -hmm. And when they discovered it was, in fact, just a banner with the slogan on it, they didn't care. They let them open it up. So you find these kinds of certain actions that seem surprising uh, the response to them seems rather extreme. And these are places where people are more likely to die rather than in the large protests. At some of the roadblocks where someone tries to get through, truckers will try to get through and it'll end up in a violent escalation and someone will end up dead. Again, deaths are relatively unusual for an undemocratic country, but that doesn't mean there isn't you know, significant contention with the roadblocks, with the government buildings being burnt down, um, et cetera. And... Speaking of the more contentious side of protests, I know the embassy staff in Amman with political portfolios especially are, are always trying to identify, you know, the telltales of larger events to see, you know, what protests will lead to big changes or to revolution. And so what are some protest repertoires or, or developments in protests that are strong signs of this kind of uh, shift? Well, I think if you look historically, there's a few issues that bring out people in large numbers consistently beyond the activists and political parties who are organizing protests and putting on Facebook pages. 
And those tend to be Israeli military campaigns into Palestinian areas will bring out widespread, especially when the death tolls are high, will bring out across the country, including the small towns, East Bank areas, everyone will be protesting around those issues. The second main one have been foreign wars, like the Iraq war some, saw some of the largest protests, or the Palestinian Intifada saw some you know, nationwide protests. But the ones that I think are, are more threatening to the regime have to do with the anti-austerity protests, sort of when there are lifting of subsidies or economic issues that people are, I mean, poverty is, it's terrible. It's, we don't have the kind of abject poverty, but you have significant Signier undernourishment, not starvation on a widespread level, but it's severely economically problematic. More than 40% of the population is un- unemployed by official figures. Mm. And we know official figures mm. are low. Right? So you have this dire economic circumstance. And so what seems to be a minor lifting of a subsidy here or there will often lead to widespread pouring into the streets. So those are the 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 topics that tend to bring out the biggest numbers in the streets, um, not the downtown area, the sort of nationwide protests. But I'm persuaded, and I, you know, this could be wrong, I'm persuaded political scientists don't really have a good toolkit for understanding what uh, Charles Tilley and others have called scale shift. Right. That is when a small scale protest escalates into a massive protest. In retrospect, we can understand a particular moment. So if we look at the United States, the killing of George Floyd, we saw massive protests. Why that instance and why not other instances? Well, part of the answer is everybody's on lockdown for COVID for several months and they're not working. They have free time. They're able to pour into the streets. They want to get out of the house. They're outraged. And so it kind of was this perfect set of factors that led to, I think, larger protests than would have been expected. But before that happened, I would never have predicted that if, if another if another person, another black person is killed at the hands of police, because it's happening all the time. Hmm. Right. So you, we, I just don't think we're good at predicting. I don't think we're good at establishing the precise factors. We can say this set would be ideal for it to happen, but we just don't have a good record of anticipating when it will happen. So for embassy wanting to know when it'll happen, the best the best um, indicators, I think, would be around the issue areas lifting of major subsidies are likely to bring people to the street. Um, but they don't, again, but they don't always. It's it's interesting that you mention issues around Israel because I feel like those are the kinds of protests that the regime is sort of able to go along with or or to co-opt. Um, or do you feel like they, they pressurize the regime because of, because of, you know, the monarchy's relationship with Israel? It's a great example of an, of an instance in which the protests do multiple kinds of political work. All right. So on the one hand, right when we had the sort of the um, when we had the Abraham Accords and the uh, particularly under Trump and Jared Kushner and Netanyahu, this talk of possibility of more Palestinians ending up in Jordan, massive protests are helpful to the regime to show this can't happen. Look what will happen if you even talk about this. So there's ways in which the regime can use protests to its advantage to say we've gone too far. This is unacceptable. On the other hand, they're still nervous making. The government does maintain a peace treaty that's broadly unpopular. Um, and so what you'll find often is the government trying to redirect the protests against, you know, the anger at Jordan for having a peace treaty, the anger at the United States for being Israel's ally, and of course, anger at Israel. They'll try to redirect it into 
um, outrage at the Palestinians being killed, and now let's mobilize humanitarian support for Palestinians or mobilize global condemnation of Israel for doing this, even though we still have a peace treaty with Israel. So you'll so you'll see that two sided. One hand, try to redirect it because it's nervous making having you know tens of thousands of people in the street, but at the same time using it uh, in its own for its own kind of political work to show how more Palestinians moving to Jordan would be untenable. This simply cannot happen. And so I think you see that an instance of both. Right. And and that reminds me of your example in the book um, of the regime essentially organizing protests itself. Did those protests or those events kind of come about in the same sorts of ways? So there's not clear patterns here. There's a handful of ones where they where they organize them. So um, and then ones that aren't contentious. So there's major marches, Queen Rania led against traffic accidents and speeding and things like this. But there were a couple that of note, one uh, I alluded to, but in uh, in the 2002 period, there was a major uh, campaign, I forget precisely which campaign it was, and widespread protests. And they launched a telethon where if you texted a certain number on your phone, you contributed $10 of humanitarian aid, and they had all these people there. But then they also had Queen Rania lead her own march from the fifth circle, right? Symbolically, symbolic, you know, the symbolism, what? Yeah. Five-star hotels uh, to a UN agency in Shmeisani. Yeah, not too far away. And so that I, ta- I thought was an effort to redirect the focus from criticism around the peace treaty to focus on Palestinian humanitarian relief, right? So that's its own kind of protest. There's another one um, in the early 2000s that a bunch of activists are organizing a campaign around changing the laws, the so-called honor crimes laws, the laws that allow lesser sentences for male perpetrators who kill or injure female relatives who are seen as doing dishonorable or potentially doing something dishonorable. So they had collected, I think, 13,000 signatures on petitions, which was extraordinary to find 13,000 Jordanians willing to put their name to a document uh, demanding changing of laws. And they want to have a major protest around this uh, at Parliament because they wanted Parliament to take up the, the revision of the laws. And they can't get a permit. So this is in this period from 2000 to 2003 where you had to get a permit in advance. And the, the laws around permits change back and forth and back and forth. But this was in a period where you had to get a permit and they couldn't get a permit. It was not being approved. And some of them knew Rania before she was queen. She moved in, you know, elite activist leftist kind of circles in a certain kind of way, not a leftist herself, but nonetheless, and reached out to her office. And indeed, they were granted a permit. But on the day of the event, the protesters find number of buses busing people in from Sports City, um, which is not too far away to attend this protest and they come out and they're pouring and there's you know hundreds and maybe over a thousand people brought in on these buses to join this protest and as the activists and organizers are talking to them they realize that these people don't even know what the protest is about and for many of them when you talk to them they were actually opposed to changing the laws <laughs> and they had pictures of the king etc so what's going on here what the organizers believe was happening was this ends up an occasion that's photographed. It's not covered in local media broadly. It ends up being shown in international media to show how progressive the regime is and how Queen Rania and the King want to change his laws 
and indeed how Jordanians, in fact, support changing these laws. They're not as backward and monstrous as you think. So it has this other kind of political work by demonstrating something that doesn't have any effect on the laws. That's not actually the people that are in favor of changing the laws. And so I have a few instances of those kinds of government involvement in organizing protests for to do own, their own particular kind of political work. Hmm, interesting. And now before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about part of your acknowledgements in the book, because you mentioned that you want Jordanian activists to be able to to recognize the country and, and its protests within your analysis. Indeed, yeah. And I was wondering how you felt this affected how you approached the findings and, and pres, pre, the sort of presentation of the book. Hmm, that's an interesting question. The things that come to mind are wanting to restore agency and voice to Jordanians, you know, in this top-down story in an authoritarian case. And so I was attentive to try throughout to let those voices come forward and their understandings of what was happening and understandings of what they were contesting. And they're often at odds with each other. Of course, there's not a single voice. So it's not a conventional political science book. I'm a political scientist, but obviously I work more interdisciplinary uh, in focus and I do ethnography and a lot of interpretive work. Uh, And so the structure of the book is around this the puzzle that there is one is this widespread protest in authoritarian context without many major massacres. Again, the major massacres that happened happened under the British, right? Not in, in the modern period. Right. So that's a sort of underwriting question. But then I really weave through other thematic things that come and go as, as I move forward. And I just want to show all kinds of different dimensions of what's happening in protest without landing on one single set of here's the conclusion but here's a range of things that are brought into view through protest. And so the structure of the book was really aimed at doing that, which is why it's multi-scalar, where I, I weave together different parts. Sometimes I'm on a, you know, one corner for an entire chapter and other times I'm, you know, moving in and out because I want to draw those connections without sacrificing the details. Sometimes the scalar approaches are the, the Google earth. As you zoom out, you see, you see a wider view, but you see less and less of the detail. I wanted to try to do something more akin to Neil Brenner's work where you don't sacrifice the detail by weaving in this multi-scalar approach. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly the value of moving across those levels really shows in the book. Thanks. Well, I mean, as I've mentioned, I do intend the book to be beyond Jordan. You know, it's a theoretical work about how to think about protests different from our conventional frameworks. And I really hope that people take up the invitation and I'm grateful for your um, uh, highlighting the book in the podcast because I, you know, I hope other people will take up some of the insights and take those to those cases. It really is the kind of approach that benefits from someone having deep knowledge of a case. So it's hard for me to pop around to other countries and pull forth those insights. But uh, I hope that other people will take up some of the invitation. And I think together, you know, we can really start thinking and theorizing some new things together uh, as we do that. Great. Well, I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it today. So Jillian, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been interesting to speak with you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. No, thank you again. And and thank you to everyone that listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast.